0: Um, If everybody could stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, please. So this is Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, "'See, you say to me, bring up this people, "'but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. "'Yet you have said, I know you by name, "'and you have also found favor in my sight. "'Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, "'please show me now your ways,' that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: That was me. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Feel like I can't move at the moment. Check one, two, good, good-ish, ish, ish. I'm still there. We go. All right. And for a minute, it sounded like I was in the belly of a whale. Um, Hey, my name is Joseph. If I haven't met you, uh, it's a joy to gather with you guys. I I serve as one of the pastors here at Providence. Um, If you're a guest, I want to make it known that um, we're glad that you're with us. As Jenna said, uh, this is not our permanent facility. Obviously, we gather uh, at a different location, but we are temporarily displaced, and uh, hopefully within the next few weeks we'll be going home. Praise God. Um, So... uh, thank you if you are a guest and you're kind of here in the evening, and we understand that this isn't the most ideal time for people to gather, especially if you have young families. But nonetheless, we're grateful that you're here. Um, We have been, as Jenna said, walking through a sermon series. Uh, We just began last week, actually, and Corey did a great job kicking us off in a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to continue in that today. Um, And my prayer, as always, is that if you are a guest or whether or not you're a member here, uh, is that we would be transformed by the hearing of the Word of God. And so would you guys please pray with me to that end? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, and we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, you have given us all that we need and far more than we deserve. And so, God, we come before you grateful, uh, with our hearts filled with gratitude and joy, knowing that you are a good Father who has given us so much Father, I pray that uh, it is from a posture of gratitude and joy that we petition you to ask you to make yourself known to us through the preaching of your word. And Holy Spirit, you would come and you would make the word clear and convicting and compelling and you would comfort us through your word as we learn more about you. And we pray that you would be glorified and we would be edified and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. amen. Okay, so... We are talking about the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, and uh, Corey. If you weren't here last week and you haven't had a chance to listen to the sermon last week, Corey kicked us off by talking about who is the Holy Spirit, and he really laid a foundation for why is it important that we would even talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's it's because as Christians, if we truly believe that our God is a Trinity, He's a triune being—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—then it's important that we understand. The Character and Nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, it, is, it is our belief and our experience even, uh, for many of us, that uh, we don't have problems talking with God as Father. Some of us do. We struggle because we didn't have great earthly fathers, and so we struggle to relate to God as Father. Um, others of us, we don't have a problem with God as the Son, as Jesus Christ being fully God, fully man. Um, but we, we tend to get a little bit anemic whenever it comes to our understanding as God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and and as Corey said last week, we really kind of can get divided in a few different camps. Those that are super jazz that we're talking about the Holy Spirit and you're ready to break out the praise banners and the tambourines, the shofars and the anointing oil. Um, and then there's those of you that are just like, listen, if if you do that, I'm just telling you right now, like, I will walk out those doors right now. Um, and and so, and, but then there are those of us that are just like, you know, I really. I, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I and I know that the Holy Spirit is active and at work in my life as a Christian, but I don't really understand why or how He's at work. And and so uh, it was our belief, our conviction, like I said, our experience that we wanted to do this series because we believe that the church uh, that is knowledgeable about God as Father and God as Son, but not knowledgeable about God as the Holy Spirit, can actually be guilty of inadvertently or unintentionally grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit's work in the life of God's people. And so we want to make sure that that's not the case. We want to make sure that everyone is here and we're we're asking and pleading and begging for God, the Holy Spirit, to do His work in and among us. Um, that we don't just thank God the Father for all that He has done, and we don't thank God the Son for all that He has done, and then think that the Holy Spirit is just kind of a shy, quiet, third member of the Trinity that is working in the background behind the scenes, and we never really acknowledge that He is at work in and among us. But we want to make sure that we as a church are uh, robust in our Trinitarian theology, and that means understanding Father, Son, and Spirit. And so um, furthermore, I want to say that Uh, one of the things that has really stood out to me is that even as we're doing a sermon series on a doctrine, right? Uh, Because at Providence, sometimes we'll do sermon series going through a book of the Bible. Sometimes, like last year we did the Bible in a year, we looked at big themes. Sometimes we'll do what we would just call like a topical series where we'll look at a specific aspect of Christian living or whatever and see what the Bible has to say about it, look at it from a more systematic standpoint. But the very fact that we're even teaching a doctrine, like we're using the pulpit and the time in the pulpit to teach a very specific doctrine I think is important for us as a church because if we're not careful we can get into this into this rut if you will and that rut is one in which we want to know what god wants of us or even we want to know what god does for us but we get to this place to where we really don't want to know about god I'm going to say that again in our culture And and I I point to this a lot because I'm very aware of our situatedness as a church, in our time, in our culture, where we are in the buckle of the Bible Belt, right, here in Houston, Texas. Maybe it's Dallas, maybe it's Houston. We kind of compete for that title, all right? But we're right here somewhere around the buckle of the Bible Belt, and we are in the suburbs of the buckle of the Bible Belt, which means uh, Christianity uh, the, the culture of Christianity, the subculture of Christianity is kind of the air that we breathe. Uh, you can go into most Starbucks and at any time of day, any time of night, and it would not be uncommon for you to walk in and see a bunch of Christians there with either their Bible open or their devotional journal or Beth Moore or something like that, right? Right? That's not uncommon to walk into a coffee shop or to walk into a place like that and see Christians sitting there with their Bible and their lap open, okay? Um, I lived down in the city for a long time. I lived in the Heights. And you know what you didn't see very common in the, in, in the coffee shops there? Christians with their Bibles open and Beth Moore Bible studies and things like that. Like the, the, the cultural paradigm and difference between like urban and suburban in an area like Houston is radically different. So the area in which we live People really do want to know, I think about, I think they want to know what God wants of them and they want to know what God does for them, but very few people put a whole lot of time, energy, and effort into studying who God is and just knowing about God. And so we wanted to make sure that before we, we start talking about what does God do for us and what are we required to do, we also need to know just about God himself, Amen. Think about it this way, in your marriage, uh, for those of you that are married, if you looked at your wife and you said, listen, here's how this is going to go, babe, I don't want to know anything about you, okay, nothing, nothing at all, don't tell me about you, I don't want to figure you out, I don't want to know what you like, I don't want to know what you don't like, I don't want to know what you're like, I just want to know what you want me to do, and I want to tell you what I want you to do for me. How do you think that would go? Like this real transactional relationship, right? Where it's like, you just, some of you are like, you're stepping on a landmine there, Joe. I actually tried to build my marriage on that and it didn't work out too well. (laughs) He's out, he's up on me. (laughs) It's like, there's inadvertent marital marital advice here, okay? Um, So don't do that, don't do that. Um, but no, that wouldn't go too well if it was just like, listen, here's how this is going to go. I'm going to tell you what I want. You tell me what you want. We'll build this transactional relationship with one another, and we'll basically just stay out, out of one another's way. Uh, I'll hold up my end of the deal. You hold up your end of the deal, and that's how we'll live out our relationship, right? That would not cultivate the kind of intimacy that we all long for in our relationships, would it? Where you actually want to not just be known, but you want to know the one in whom you, you have put Your love, or you have invested your love into. And so the same thing is true of our relationship with God. We can get into this rut where we simply want to know what God requires of us, and then in some ways we can even say what God has done for us. We can can put so much attention into the gospel, which is a good thing, but we never actually zoom out and look at the character and nature of the God of the gospel. And so whenever we were talking as an elder team back in the fall about doing the sermon series, I said it's important that we know who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. Not just what He does, but who He is and what He does, what He's like. And so today we're going to be talking about the presence of God, the Holy Spirit as the presence of God in our lives. And I think this is something that's extremely important for us. It's extremely important for us because in the time in which the Bible was written, uh, we have to understand that the culture to which the Bible was written into was written into a, a time and age where um, not just the children of Israel, but all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures around them in the, in the greater area of Mesopotamia and all of those uh, regional areas, the, the, the entire cultural construct of that time was built around the understanding that, that God was real. There weren't very many peoples or cultures in that time that debated whether or not there was a god or whether or not there was gods. Most peoples and cultures at that time believed in deity. Um, now, the children of Israel, of course, believed in Yahweh, but there were other religion or there were other uh, cultures in that area that believed in different gods of different religions, but. One of the things that we learn from, from surveying history and looking back in archaeological artifacts and all kinds of stuff like that, looking back into that corridor of time, is that we know that most peoples and cultures of that time had their lives and their society built around a pursuit of the divine. Is everyone tracking with me? There was a bit, there, most peoples and cultures were built around a pursuit of the divine. Now, was it Yahweh? Was it some pagan god? Or you know, was it an Egyptian god? Or any, any, like? We're not going to talk about all of that. But the time in which it was written was these people lived their lives in the pursuit of the divine. Now, look at our culture today, and again, zooming out a little bit, um, not just to our particular suburban context, but to look into like, the, the city, the state, the nation in which we live in, and seeing the, pro- the progress, the cultural progress that's being made, if you call it progress. Uh, our culture is not so much built around the pursuit of the divine and understanding the divine, our culture is built around the pursuit of self, correct? It's built around the pursuit of self. It's built around the pursuit of self-gratification, self-enjoyment, self-actualization, self-esteem, self, 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 self. But so the, the cultural air that we live in, in, even in suburban subcultural Christianity, is still in a large part built around the pursuit of self. And now why is that important to what we're going to talk about today? It's because... The notion that not only God is real, but God wants to be with us, and not only that God is real and God wants to be with us, but that God lives in us, which is what the Christian claim is, that the Holy Spirit of God now dwells in us, is a notion that would have been radically inconceivable for the people of this time in which the Bible was written radically inconceivable that not only is God real most of them again they lived in the pursuit of the divine so God being real was not necessarily an issue for cultures in that time God being with you already is a radical claim but then Christianity goes even a little bit further than that and the new covenant is that not not only is God with us but God now dwells in us that would have been a radical claim a radical claim, I mean, like an earth shattering reality and paradigm for people to believe that God could truly dwell in them and work and accomplish his will in and through us. And so it's important for us to see before we dive into the Bible that what's being laid out here is already quite substantial, it's quite significant. That what Jenner read just a moment ago in Exodus 33, whenever God is saying that he essentially is going to be with his people, and Moses is saying, how are the nations of the world going to know that we are your people unless you go with us? That already is a substantial and a significant reality that God would be with his people. But then we're going to see that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not just that God can be with us or that God can be among us, but that God in his presence and power now dwells in us. And that is substantial. Now, why is that substantial in light of the culture in which we live in? It's because the culture in which we live in, the whole reason it's built around pursuit uh, of self and self gratification and self actualization and self, 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 self is because people are looking for something that's transcendent. All right, now what do I mean by transcendent? They're looking to experience some sort of power. They're looking to experience some sort of meaning. They're looking to experience some sort of significance. They want their lives to count, right? We want the 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we might live on this planet to actually matter. And we want our existence on this planet during the time that we're here to be of some significance, correct? Everyone tracking with me. That's the culture in which we live. The problem is that we no longer aim that at the divine. We aim that inwardly, completely. And we say, if my life is going to have any, any, any semblance of significance or substance or meaning, then the power that I need to look to tap into is not out there. It's in here, right? So this is the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. If you really want your life to count, you just need to look deeper inside. If you really want your life to matter, then here's seven steps to to unleash a better, more powerful you, right? Or here's nine practices to cut off dead weight in your life. Here's how to get rid of bad relationships or a bad job or a bad, you see what I'm saying? but we're absolutely looking for those things. We're looking for substance. We're looking for significance. We're looking for power. We're looking for tapping into something that's transcendent. We're looking for, to tap into some, something of, of great meaning and depth in life. We want our lives to count while we're here. The problem is we're no longer looking outward at the divine. We're looking inward itself. And the further we go in, if we're honest, the worse it gets, right? Now, I don't know about you, the reason that I have a hard time with the self-help stuff is that it tells you to look in. And I'm like, the deeper I look in, the worse it gets. It doesn't get any better in there. So if I'm like looking to tap into my potential by going deeper into this heart, then I know that my potential is very limited because there's not a whole lot of good stuff going on in there now I can try and like cheer myself on. Like I can be like the Tony Robbins or like the Richard Simmons, you know, like I can get that voice going in my head. It's like, you're a champion, you're a winner, you can do it. But really all I'm doing, and here's what it is, is I'm lying to myself to make me feel better about me. And so we live in this culture that's uh, again, the time in which the Bible was written, most of the peoples and cultures, that were built around the pursuit of the divine. We live in a culture in which we try and access the divine and all that the divine would offer us, but we try and access it through inward pursuit of selfish ambitions and desires. Now, the reason I lay that framework before we get into the text is because what God has on offer for us by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is that all that our culture is looking for, the substance, the significance, the meaning, the power to overcome, the power to live a victorious and meaningful life and a triumphant life, all of that that our culture is looking for, that so desperately wants to experience life, depth, and meaning in this world, is actually made available to us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. They're looking, deeper, they're looking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into themselves, and they're finding that pursuit to be a shallow and fruitless pursuit. But we as Christians say that we have something that dwells on the inside of us, someone who dwells on the inside of us, that gives our lives more significance, meaning, depth than we could ever imagine. And so a few, we're going to talk, as I said, we're going to be talking about the presence of God. Now I got a few points and they're very simple points. The first point, I want to look at what is the presence of God. Second, I want to look at why does it matter? And the third, I want to look at how do we live in light of the presence of God? So what is the presence of God? Why does it matter? And how do we live in light of it? So the first in Exodus 33, we have, again, we have Moses. And uh, to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here, uh, this is after Moses goes up to the mountain and uh, receives the Ten Commandments from the Lord. He comes down; the children of Israel are dancing around the golden calf. Moses, is, of course, irate. Um, God is angry, and then Moses. God essentially tells Moses he gives Moses this plan that he wants to dwell among his people. Um, That God is going to dwell among his people, but because they are sinful and he is holy, we'll talk about this here in a a little while, but because they are sinful and he is holy, he cannot dwell among them without there being a tent or a tabernacle, if you will, for his presence to dwell. And so this entire paradigm or this entire framework or construct for the children of Israel of the presence of God actually takes center focus right here. And I'm going to back up a little bit just before Jenner started in verse 12, but I'm going to back up to verse 7 and I'm going to read a little bit of context for you. God tells the children of Israel to leave the Mount Sinai area, which is where they, came, where they were dancing around the golden calf at the base of the mountain. God tells them, I want you to leave this place. And in verse 7, he says, I'm going to go with you. But in verse 7, here's where it picks up. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, "...far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting." Now, this is substantial. This is where God would meet with his people. "...and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp." All right. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his, at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent." And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So here's what's happening is, uh, the, the people of God all gathered around Mount Sinai about this time, and there was this tent. There was this camp, if you will, and there was this tent, and it was called the Tent of Meeting. It's where the presence of God would essentially come and dwell down in this tent, and the only person that could enter into that tent or, or to approach that tent was Moses. Moses would go, and he would stand before the presence of God. He would hear from God, and then he would take the Word of God, and he would turn around, and he would teach it to the people. All right, so there was this unique thing that was going on in this time where God was actually speaking to his people through his presence, but through a mediator, through Moses. Moses was a mediator of God's presence and God's word to God's people. Is everyone with me? He was a mediator of God's presence and God's word to God's people. Okay, keep reading in verse 12. So Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, it's Moses petitioning God, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, this is God responding back to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will go Not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now I'm going to keep reading. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses asked, now mind you, Moses is already at this place where he's talking face to face with God, uh, which is not something that anyone else in that time got to do without dropping dead. Okay. So God gave Moses favor. He gave him grace to be able to even commune with him. But so here's Moses essentially saying, okay, God, I've I've, I've had this relationship, but I want to see your glory. What he's saying is, I want to see you in all of your fullness. I want to see you. I want to see all of you. And here's what God says back to him. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what's happening here is, as I said, Moses has had this mediatorial relationship between God and God's people, where Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would sit there and the, the presence of God would come down like a pillar of fire, like a pillar of cloud, and God would speak to Moses. And then Moses would then take that word and he would turn around and he would teach God's people what God had said. Moses is essentially saying, God, I not only want to, to, to hear your word, I not only want to, to know what you're saying, I want to see your glory. I want to see all of your goodness. I want to see you. And God says, okay, I will, I will pass by. I will show you my glory, but I cannot look at you face to face because you won't live if you look at me face to face. So what I'll do is I'll cover you up and then as I pass you can see my backside and then you can basically I'll give you a glimpse of my glory but I'm not going to show you the full thing. Now why? It's because whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, as Christians we believe that whenever Adam and Eve sinned and we rebelled against God, right? Not only did our, not only was our relationship with God broken, but we were cast out of the presence of God, right? We were cast out of the garden, which is where God was dwelling in that time. And so we were cast out of the garden. We were cast out of the presence of God. One of the consequences of our sin is that because God is holy and now we are sinful, we cannot commune with him face to face. The holiness of God, the glory of God, if you will, is much like fire. Okay, now you can ask the most intelligent scientist in the world what is fire? And do you know that the most intelligent scientists in the world will struggle to give you a simple definition of what a flame is? This blew my mind. Whenever I was studying the holiness of God, I studied a long time ago, the holiness of God likened to the fire and all of that consuming fire. I, I, I remember reading and then I went and YouTubed a bunch of stuff look, looking for definitions of fire. And it is almost impossible for some of those brilliant minds in the world to explain what a flame is in simple terminology. The glory of God and the holiness of God is much like fire. It's not something that we can explain away so easily. It's something that just is. There's so much to it that it's hard to put in simple definitions. The glory of God, the holiness of God, is not something that we can whittle down into one simple little definition. Anytime we try to whittle it down into a simple definition, essentially all we get to come up with is that it means that God is utterly different than us. And the ways in which he is different than us, here's what we know. Just like fire. If we try and approach fire, it is so different than us, what happens if we touch it? We get burned by it, right? We in our flesh cannot interact with fire without getting consumed by it. The holiness of God, the face of God, the glory of God is much the same. We cannot interact with or approach the holiness of God without being consumed by it. And so this is what God is saying to Moses. God is saying to Moses, no, I'm not going to show you my face. No, I'm not going to show you all of my glory, because if I were to show you that, you would surely die. You would be consumed in the presence of me actually revealing all of my glory to you. So here's what I, what, what I want us to get before we, move in, before we move on in this point. Is that when we talk about the presence of God, and we talk about the holiness of God, the glory of God, all of these can kind of uh, in some way, shape, or form be interwoven with one another throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. The holiness of God, the presence of God, the glory of God. We have to understand that there is really not a simple way to define it. What the children of Israel were often left to do is just to describe it. It's different like it's a it's a different thing to describe versus define something, is it not? So they were left with with attempts to try and describe what was happening to them, but they couldn't always necessarily define what was happening or what was before them. The holiness of God, the glory of God is much like that. We just know that it is something that is other than us and it is something that we cannot approach without being consumed by because we are completely different. We are sinful. God is not. So a very simple definition of what's happening here and why Moses cannot interact with God face-to-face is because God is so other than him, Moses would be consumed by him if he were to stand before him essentially without being protected. All right. Now, I want to lay that framework because the definition that I'm going to give you for the presence of God is a simple definition, but it has massive implications, okay? It has massive implications, and I've studied, man, I've tried to study this as much as I possibly can. I read just about every brand and variety of theologian as I was studying for this sermon. And I, I tried to, to always, I try and whittle down little simple definitions. That the presence of God is a manifestation of God himself. The presence of God is a manifestation of God himself among his people in a particular form for a particular purpose. The presence of God is a manifestation of God among his people for in, a, in a particular form for a particular purpose. In a particular form for a particular purpose. Now, I want to say something before I go on. The way in which I'm talking about the presence of God is the way in which Moses was talking about the presence of God. We're not talking about the omnipresence of God. There are two different variations of the presence of God that we can talk about theologically. We can talk about the omnipresence of God, which means that God is at all places at all times, right? Upholding everything by the word of his power. Psalm 139 makes this very clear. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but Psalm 30, 139 makes it very clear, a prayer of David. It says, where could I go apart from your spirit, apart from your presence, right? David says, if I go to the sea, you're there. If I go into the, to the, to the pits of hell, you're there. So David is essentially saying, everywhere I go, God is there because God is omnipresent. So we have to understand in theological terms, there is such thing as the omnipresence of God, where God is at work at all times, amongst all people, in every way. He is upholding all things and we cannot escape his presence. But the other theological way in which we can study the presence of God is to look at the manifest presence of God, which is what we're talking about. Is a manifestation of God himself among his people in a particular form for a particular purpose. And we have this in the Old Testament, the presence of God would show up in a number of ways. Of course, we have the presence of God show up like in the tabernacle, where the presence of God would be like a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and it was guiding God's people. We have what we would call, this is a $10 word, I'll explain it to you. We have theophanies in the Old Testament, Theophanies are whenever like the angel of the Lord would appear and like the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob, right? And we know that those were all capital letters because they were, they were uh, proper nouns. The angel of the Lord likely was God himself that had wrestled with, all right? The, 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 the fourth man that showed up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story of Daniel, all right? The son of man that would show up, right? These are theophanies, which means they are pictures of God himself showing up. So there's those manifestations of the presence of God showing up. There's the manifestation of the presence of God in the tabernacle, in the temple. Then, of course, a very clear manifestation of the presence of God is God himself coming and dwelling among us in flesh as the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Then we have the presence of God now come to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the presence of God is a manifestation of God himself among his people for a particular purpose and in a particular form. And that takes different, like I said, there, there are many different ways in which God shows up, if you will, throughout the Bible. Now, I want to make the case before we jump into the third point, as we're talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that the presence of God and the Spirit of God are one and the same. The presence of God and the Spirit of God are one and the same. The Spirit of God... Always shows up in the presence of God. And you say, How are we going to make that claim? Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Already, I, like I said, I didn't read it to you, but you can read it in Psalm 139. David equates the omnipresence of God with the Spirit of God. He says, Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I go from your Spirit? But in Isaiah chapter 63, where is Isaiah 63? We see something and we read something that is very uh, substantial whenever it comes to being able to equate the Spirit of God and the presence of God as one and the same. A manifestation of the presence of God is the Spirit of God at work among the people of God. Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 7, I'll read. Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord... The praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted to us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel, that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, check this out. Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned them to their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people, where he, his, he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock, where he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Now, what is he saying in this passage? Numerous times, Isaiah says it was the Holy Spirit of God that was leading the people of God out of Egyptian slavery and captivity. Now, if you go back and you read that in Exodus, in Exodus, it is consistently referred to as the presence of God. He is consistently referred to as the presence of God. The presence of God is guiding them. In Isaiah's mind, the presence of God that was guiding the children of Israel was the Holy Spirit of God. So whenever we get to the New Testament, and we'll get there in a moment, whenever we get to the New Testament and we see that the Holy Spirit now comes and indwells God's people, we have to understand that it is the very presence of God himself that is dwelling inside of us. The very presence of God himself that is dwelling inside of us. Now, you can turn with me back to, well, actually, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll kind of recap. What's happening in Exodus 33, which is important for us, is Moses understands something that we need to understand. Moses understands that the presence of God, the presence of God is what makes the people of God distinct from all the other people in the world. It is the presence of God that makes the people of God distinct from all the other people in the world, which is why one of the most powerful truths that Christians can claim is that God is with us. The name that's given to Jesus where he says that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that is a powerful claim that we get to hold on to as Christians to say God is with us. God came to be with, in Christ, he came to be with us. And now in the Holy Spirit, he is with us and he is dwelling in us. Which, like I said, goes a step even further. He's not just with us, he's not just among us, he's in us. His presence now dwells in us. Now this is something that the children of Israel could have hardly imagined. They had a framework for God being among them. They had a framework for God being with them. They had a framework for that. The the, the tabernacle was set up. The temple was set up. But his presence wasn't readily accessible to them because they were unholy, right? They were unholy and God was holy, so they knew if they tried to enter into his presence, what would happen to them? They would drop dead. They needed a mediator. That's why the entire temple system, the tabernacle system, the temple system was set up with the Levitical priesthood, which were these mediators that could actually enter into the presence of God. But they could only enter into the presence of God through this very strict and rigorous system of sacrifices, right? There was only one person at that time that could enter into the presence of God. That was whoever the chosen high priest was. All of the rest of the children of Israel could only interact around the presence of God but they could not enter into the presence of God. So it would have been a radical claim for them to think that they could actually access His presence in their life without a mediator. And we think, how how could that ever be? How could we ever come, how could we, sinful people, ever come into contact with the presence of a holy God without being consumed? Just like we would ask, how could we possibly step into a fire without being consumed by it? The children of Israel would have had the same struggle. How could we ever stand in the presence of God without being completely consumed by it? If Moses himself, who was a type and shadow of Christ and who was himself the first high priest, right, that that could stand and mediate God's presence to his people, if Moses himself couldn't even see the face of God without dropping dead, how on earth could we ever have the presence of God accessible in our lives? This would have been a radical thing for them to consider. An even more astonishing claim is found, and I want you to turn with me there now, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is the second point. The first point, of what is the presence of God? The presence of God is the Spirit of God. A manifestation of the Spirit of God in our lives as it it relates to the church. Now, an an astonishing claim, a promise can be found in this prophecy given by Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll read in verse 22. Actually, sorry. We'll start. Yeah. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. I want to read this prophecy to you. I'll guarantee you, as the children of Israel are sitting here and they're listening to this prophecy, it is blowing their mind that this promise is being held out to them. All along, they knew from Exodus. God had told them, I will dwell among you, I will be your God, you will be my people. But what's about to be promised here goes, like I said, even a step further. It's not that God would just be with us or God would be among us, but what Ezekiel is about to say is that God now comes and dwells in us. Verse 22, it says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Uncleannesses. (laughs) And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you, check this out. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll stop there. So, What God is saying to the children of Israel is he's saying, there's coming a day when I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to put my power, my presence inside your heart. I'm going to, del- I'm, first of all, I'm going to clean you. I'm going to deliver you from your sin. I'm going to, to cleanse your heart from all of your impurities. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell inside of you. Now, this is a, again, this is a radical claim for them. It's a sure, it should still stand as a radical claim for us. So why does this matter? Why does the presence of God now dwelling in the people of God matter? The children of Israel live by two things. I said this, I think the last time I preached, whenever I preached out of Nehemiah, the children of Israel really, the, the life of the children of Israel evolved around two things, two T words, Torah and temple. Or before the temple was built, Torah and tabernacle. The entire way of life for the children of Israel is built around those two things. Torah, which is the law of God, the word of God in written form and temple, the presence of God among them. The Torah was the law of God that showed them how to live holy lives. Everyone tracking with me? Showed them how to live holy lives, also revealed to them the holiness and the nature and character of God. The temple was the dwelling place for the holiness of God himself. Everyone with me? Torah showed them how to live holy lives. Temple, where the holiness of God himself actually dwelt. And what is again, astonishing, I keep using that word because it is astonishing, is that the promise of Ezekiel is so astounding because the Torah is going to be written on their heart and the Holy Spirit is now going to dwell in them. So the two things that the children of Israel have based their entire existence on, the law of God and the presence of God was now about to become a part of them. Not external, external, internal, not just trying to be holy, not just trying to encounter God's holiness from a distance, but the Holy Spirit of God was actually going to come inside of them and make them holy. He was going to write his word on their hearts. He was going to write the Torah on their hearts, and then he was going to make them the temple. Now again, for you and I, because we don't live in this culture that's built on the pursuit of God and the experience of the divine, this is kind of like, well, this is cool stuff. I'm telling you, for the children of Israel, this can't be. This is too good to be true. This could never happen. How could this ever happen? That the temple and the Torah would actually come and it wouldn't just be this external reality that we're constantly interacting around or trying to do, but it would be something that's done to us and it's done in us. So in verse 30, or chapter 37, it gets even better. It says, the word of the Lord, in verse 15, sorry. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and ride on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and ride on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and the house of Israel associated with him, and join them to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And your people, And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, behold, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join with it, the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. God is essentially saying, I'm about to reunite the kingdoms that have been divided. The children of Israel have been divided up until this point. He says, and I, will, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may become one in my hand. Now check this out. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before your eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and will bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms, right? So what God is saying is he is going to take this divided people and he's going to unite them. He's going to take a a divided people, he's going to unite them and he's going to do this in the power of his Holy Spirit. It's this radical promise that there is coming this day where the people of Israel who had been scattered and the people of Israel who had been divided are now all of a sudden going to become united and they're going to be united under one king. And God is going to do this miraculous work of writing his law on their hearts and putting his spirit on the inside of them. And so again, this promise, this, this potential fulfilled promise is got to be looming over the children of Israel. Like, I cannot wait for the day that this happens, that God is going to gather us all together and he's going to give us our own land and we're going to have one king again and it's going to be great. And we're not even going to have to go to the temple and we're not going to have to be so concerned about the Torah because the Torah is going to be written on our heart and the temple, the presence of God is the spirit of God is now going to dwell in us. And this promise, as I said over and over and over again, is astonishing. It's astounding because what is being said here is the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in us. But rather than consume us, the Holy Spirit is going to make us holy. Because prior to this, remember, the holiness of God just consumed people. But so now what's going to happen is the Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to dwell inside of us. The presence of God is going to come and He's going to dwell inside of us but rather than consuming us, he's going to consume our sin. The fire of God, the purity of God, the holiness of God is going to come and dwell in us and through the word of God and by the spirit of God, we are going to be transformed. Now, why, 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 why? Again, does this matter so much? And and this is the point, the pastoral point that I really want to drive home. Is listen to me, brothers and sisters, without the presence of, Of God in our lives without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives we are left to try and become holy all on our own we're left to try and become holy all on our own which means although we claim to be Christian we are essentially doing the same thing that our culture does which we're looking inwardly to ourselves to try and fix ourselves We're looking in here to see where the the resolution is, where the help comes from. And like I said, if we're honest, the deeper we look, the darker it gets. We're left to try and do that on our own. Without the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, we're left to try and become holy on our own. And listen, He is called Holy Spirit for a reason. It's because Holy Spirit's Primary function in your life, we actually just read it in Ezekiel chapter 36. Holy Spirit's primary function in your life is to make you holy. I'm gonna say this for my charismatic brothers and sisters in the room, okay? Holy Spirit's primary function in your life is not to make you feel something, Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Is not to give you that emotional encounter that you so desperately long for in gathered worship. Holy Spirit's presence in your life is not just to give you gifts so that way you can enjoy using the gifts. All that Holy Spirit does is he comes into our lives to make us holy. And even the gifts that he gives us, which we'll talk about that weeks from now, the gifts that he gives us are given to serve and to edify and to build up one another so that we all become holy. And our holiness, now check this out, our holiness then becomes the fuel for our mission. He says, I'm going to do all of this so that the nations will know who I am, which was the promise from the beginning which is what Moses himself knew. God, I don't want to go from, this pla- go from this place without your presence. I don't want to go from this place without your holiness dwelling among us, because how are anyone going to know that we're different? God comes and makes us holy so that way we would be utterly distinct and utterly different so that the nations of the world, your non-believing neighbors and coworkers, would look into your life and they would say, there's something different. There's something distinct. There's something powerful. There's something to their life that I don't have and I want it. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, the power and the presence of God dwelling, us, dwelling inside of us is to make us holy. Now he does that in two ways. He gives us the word of God that he actually, of course we have written for us, but the word of God is now seared into our heart and he comes and dwells inside of us with his power and presence. So listen, again, the reason why this is so important is because if we can do the Christian life on our own, without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, then we're not living the Christian life. I'm going to say that again. If you can do the Christian life on your own without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, then you're not living the Christian life. Francis Schaeffer says this. He says, may I put it like this. This is so convicting. I always love to share convicting quotes with you guys if you haven't noticed. Um, May I put it like this. If I wake up tomorrow morning and found that all the Bible teaches concerning prayer and the Holy Spirit were removed, (laughs) I love this, not as a liberal would remove it by misinterpretation, but really removed, (laughs) what difference? It's actually kind of a jab at Thomas Jefferson there, if you didn't know that. Thomas Jefferson just cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't like. It's called the Thomas Jefferson edition. Um, So. He says, not as a liberal would remove it by misinterpretation, but really removed. He says, what difference would it make in practice from the way we are functioning today? The simple tragic fact is that in much of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the evangelical church, there would be no difference whatsoever. So Francis Schaeffer says, if I were to just wake up tomorrow morning and, and all that the Bible teaches about prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit was removed... Many of us live in such a way that it wouldn't make any difference in our lives whatsoever. We would just keep functioning. If we can live without prayer and we can live without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then again, we're not living the Christian life. And the reason we wouldn't miss it is because we don't live the kind of life that actually requires the presence of the Holy Spirit as an absolute necessity. This is so convicting to me. Because I know how easy it is to try and operate in my own strength and my own power and my own wit and my own intelligence, you know, whatever, my own gifts, the skills that God has given me. I know how easy it is to rely on my intellect or to rely on things like that to get me by each and every day. And I know how easy it is to, to either intentionally or unintentionally ignore the juggernaut power of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of me. And I do reinforce the term juggernaut power of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. Any of you guys remember Matt Schaub? Yes. Okay. Imagine this. Imagine this, that we, we, uh, we go home tonight and uh, on ESPN, there's these big, bold headlines that there was some supernatural encounter in Matt Schaub's life. Where Matt Schaub was actually given a supernatural gift to play football, right? Some of you understand that that's a jab, right? Some of you are like, I don't get it. Okay, Matt Schaub, garbage, all right? So, so, oh, I'm so sorry for Matt Schaub, the poor guy that makes millions of dollars in any way. So, That Matt Schaub, we see it on ESPN. Matt Schaub, supernatural, divine encounter with God, now given a spectacular gift to be able to play football. Now, we would expect that if that was the claim, that the next time that we see Matt Schaub suit up, put on his jersey, and go out there and throw, at least his accuracy is going to have improved some, right? Right? Maybe his QBR is going to go up, his quarterback rating. $10 word, ladies, all right? QBR, some of you know what that is, some of you have no idea. His quarterback rating is gonna grow up, his passing accuracy is gonna go up, the number of pick sixes he throws is gonna go down, right? So if we saw the supernatural encounter where now Matt Schaub can play football happened in his life, we're going to expect that the next day there's some measurable difference that happened, correct? If not, then what we're going to do is we're probably gonna be a little bit suspicious of that claim. Right, you had a supernatural encounter where God gave you the gift to play football, but your football, like your football playing, is not increased whatsoever. I, I highly doubt that this actually happened to you. If we say that we have been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God dwells in us, does it not make sense that there should be some measurable difference about our lives? Something should be different about how we live as opposed to those who do not have the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, correct? There should be something different. There should be something measurable that has taken place. Now, this is where charismatics get off into the realm of experience. They say, I have experienced things. And trust me, I do believe that the Holy Spirit coming into your life is in and of itself an experience. It is an experienced reality. There is something that happens to you and something that happens in you. And it is what is happening to you and what is happening in you is the greatest miracle. It's that God himself is now making his home in your heart. (laughs) That's crazy. God himself, almighty God, dwelling in here. Now, if I go about my life And I live as though that is not true. That is not on God. That is on me. Now some of us are like, I haven't haven't experienced anything different since I became a Christian. I don't know this experience that you're talking about, Pat. Like I don't understand. It's because I want you to be woefully aware of this reality. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that now dwells in you, right? That's what Romans 8 tells us. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. Acts 1.8 says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will come and he will endue you with power. Luke 24 says that we will be clothed with power from on high, that we will receive power. Now the Greek word there is the word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite, which means that there would be explosive, dynamic power that enters into our life whenever the presence of God comes and fills our heart. Now if we are not experiencing that power, we have one of two th- one of two. I guess, hypothesis that we could make. Number one is we could say either A, the power isn't real or the power of God, he just doesn't want to do it. We can take the passive approach or we can take the negligent approach. Or we can take, I think, the biblical approach, which is to realize that we can, just as God said the children of Israel did, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, we can minimize the Holy Spirit, we can ignore the Holy Spirit, we can suppress the Holy Spirit, and we can live our lives as though the Holy Spirit is not a part of it. Paul himself echoes this in his letter to the Galatians. You who began in the Spirit, are you now going to try and perfect yourself by works of the flesh? Paul says, so do you not remember whenever the Spirit of God filled you? Do you not remember whenever the Spirit of God made your heart new? Do you not remember whenever the Spirit of God regenerated you? Now are you going to try and be sanctified in your own strength? It's possible, friends, to be filled with the juggernaut power of the Holy Spirit and not actually tap into it, into our lives. It's possible to do that. Now how? How? Very quickly, and I won't turn there for the sake of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 18. And I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. All of this is talking about the Holy Spirit of God now dwelling in us and we becoming now the tents of God's dwelling place. Paul says that whenever Moses went before God and whenever he came down from the mountain, he had a veil over his face. He had a veil over his face. That the children of Israel couldn't even look into Moses' face because Moses' face was shining so brightly from standing in the presence of God that if Moses would have lifted the veil, then they also would have perished just from the reflection of God's glory. Paul says that we who have been filled with the Spirit now all can see the glory of Christ with unveiled faces. What does that mean? It means that because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, the person and work of Christ, all that was promised for us in Ezekiel, that he would come and he would, he would sprinkle clean water on our hearts, that he would make us new, that he would cleanse us, that he would do this cleansing work because that has been done for us by Jesus Put it this way because the temple has been cleaned and cleansed and purified by the blood of Christ, now the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of us, and we can be transformed from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory with unveiled faces. We can be transformed by beholding the face, the glory of God. Now, where do we do that? We do that in the gospel. We do that in the gospel of Jesus, brothers and sisters. We become more like who God has called and created us to be in the power of the Holy Spirit by looking back upon and remembering and reflecting upon the person and work of Christ. Paul says we're transformed by looking in the face of the glory of God. Where do we see the face and glory of God at work? It's in the person and work of Jesus. And so I want to put before you that maybe one of the reasons that we struggle as bad as we struggle to live the Christian life is because much like the world around us, we're looking inwardly and we're not looking outwardly. We're looking down, we're not looking up. We're looking to ourself and our flesh, and we're not looking for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us, to renew our hearts, to sanctify us, to strengthen us to send us in power. And this makes us, what this makes us is this makes us still vulnerable. It makes us still needy. It makes us still dependent. And the reason why I reference 2 Corinthians 3 is because Paul says we are being transformed. Not we have been completely transformed, We are being transformed, which means there is this present tense, ongoing, active work of the Holy Spirit in our life that needs to take place, and it will only take place as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus with unveiled faces. We can see God for who He is and what He's done for us in Christ, and we now have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside us so we can be transformed into the likeness and image of Jesus in a way that the people of God had never known prior to Christ coming and Christ sending the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to be encouraged in this reality, friends, that you have the very presence of God, the personhood of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you. Dwells inside of you. This this will change how you wake up and pray in the morning. If you know this. And you know that the Holy Spirit isn't just some impersonal force, right? He's not just wind and fire and emotion and lights and smoke and lasers and good worship songs, right? He's, not, he's actually not those things at all. He is a person that dwells inside of you, walking with you and in, in you all day, every day. The question is not, is he with you or is he in you? The question is, are you going to be with him in your prayer life? Are you going to be with him in dependence? Are you going to be with him by calling upon him and crying out to him? Or are you going to try and do this Christian life on your own? And so my prayer for us is is that the people of providence, we would be a people that are radically dependent upon the power and the presence of God in our lives. Radically dependent. We understand, God, we're not going to go from this place unless you go with us. We don't want to do this unless we know that you're leading us to do it. We don't want to do anything that would grieve you. We don't want to do anything that would quench or suppress your work in and among us. We don't want to do those things, God. We want to give full expression to all that you desire to do in our lives. So I want to pray that our church would step into that promise and really live out that promise that God has given us all that we need and far more than we deserve in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this time to gather God, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word and to speak and to edify and to exhort. And I pray that, as I said, we we as a church would not live in a way that we don't require your power and presence to be at work and active in in, and among us. God, I pray that we would not live in such a way that we try and follow you without the power of your Holy Spirit and the presence of your Holy Spirit. It is possible to grieve you. It is possible to quench you, Holy Spirit. It is possible to ignore and to minimize and to suppress who you are and what you came to do in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, if we have done that, I pray that you would forgive us. If we have tried to live our lives without you, I pray that you would forgive us and I pray that we would turn to you O oh God and we would cry out to you to make what we know about you effectual in our hearts that we wouldn't just talk about this but we would actually experience your power renewing us and transforming us from one degree of glory into the other help us God Help us to see what we don't see. Help us to live in a way, God, that is completely dependent upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.